The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson, your host on this journey through the history of literature. And guess where we're going today? To the opera? No, but that's a good guess. To the movies. In this case, it's the same thing. Actually, I had a CD once called Opera Goes to the Movies, and this song, O Mio Babino Carol, was on it. It is, of course, from the soundtrack to A Room with a View, which was based on the novel by E.M. Forster. Hearing it now takes me back to my beloved Italian farmhouse, where I stayed with a family, with an amazing couple, and two lovely young children, who I guess were kind of my awards. I did magic tricks for them, and we played board games and cards, and we ate together. And when the kids were in school, I wandered out to the hammock in the front yard, which overlooked the rolling hills and fields of the hills outside Bologna. It was a fertile time. And... They owned this CD, Opera Goes to the Movies, with this song. And this one. Remember this? Oh boy. Here we go. This will get your blood flowing. <laughs> ah, I can hear the choppers. I can feel them in my chest. Smell the scent of victory. Ah, there were many others on that CD. Puccini was on there and ate pasta, drank wine, and read books. It was a delicious, wondrous season of my life. Oh, here comes another one. Oh, yes. you back, doesn't it? Picture yourself there. Oh, and here's another one, based on my favorite book.
the end of the affair with the score by Michael Nyman. This one breaks my heart. So much about the movies breaks my heart. It's what it means to be alive, isn't it? Going to the movies? The other day, my friend and I had lunch near the water. We were eating fish from a fish market. And it came with bread. My friend started throwing bits of bread into the water. And he pointed at my bread and said, Aren't you going to feed the ducks? Look at that. That's a sign of depression. You have two slices of bread and you're not even feeding the ducks. And I said, How do I know they're supposed to be fed? Maybe they can't eat this kind of bread. You are probably killing the ducks. Of course, that was ridiculous. And he goaded me into throwing some of the bread overboard off the pier. And it did seem a little crazy that I had resisted. Of course ducks can eat bread. Kids have been feeding the bread for centuries. I've done it myself. The ducks were just fine. They were happy to have it. So finally I did. I tore off a chunk, threw it into the air, and a sparrow came swooping out of nowhere and snatched it out of midair. Then I couldn't bear to look over the side of the pier because I was certain that sparrows couldn't eat bread and I had just killed one. That's what I'd see if I looked over. A sparrow belly up, gasping for air. It's not easy being me, people. (laughs) Living in this world. I was kind of down. DC is a bit of a downer these days for those of you who are lucky enough to be elsewhere. But then I went to the movies. That's right. I went to see Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen. That cheered me up. My oldest son went with me and he's just old enough to appreciate movies like this and he loved it and talking to him about it and feeling like maybe maybe he and I are going to transition into the kind of people who can go to a movie and talk about it as equal thinkers that was exciting and the movie itself actually my same friend was there the one who knows all about the different kinds of foods that different birds can eat. He was there at the movies. And he came out of the movie at the intermission and said, Oh, the space in this movie, the wide open space. It inspires me to go and clean out my garage. <laughs> That's a kind of inspiration. I know what he meant. We might not all be headed for an adventure or headed to find our destiny or even engaged in the existential struggle to figure out who we are except as soon as I say that I think actually isn't that true of all of us isn't that the case all those things isn't that what it means to be alive and human of course it does and shouldn't that fill us with excitement and not dread Mike Palindrome is here today another reason for excitement We'll be talking about great adaptations. 
the best films based on books of all time. It's not easy, folks. There must be a thousand good ones. I'm sure we left out some of your favorites. Take these for what they are, a subjective list. We had fun with it anyway. I hope you do, too. Oh, there's someone at the door. Yes, who is it? Hello, I'm Oliver Twist. Oh. More gruel, please, sir. That's all I'm asking for. And guess who's been doling out the gruel here at the workhouse? Oh. Why, it's that insufferable drudge, Mr. Jack Wilson. Ah, mm. oh, I guess he ain't a bad sort when he's not jawing my ear off about some chap named Dickens. I couldn't care less about meeting some old writer fellow, but I would like some more gruel. Won't you please throw a few shillings at Mr Wilson so he can spare another spoonful of slop for me and the other lads? We'll consider ourselves grateful. Oh, Oliver Twist. Well, thank you, Oliver. That was a nice visit. I'll ignore the part about the insufferable drudge. And just tell the listeners how they can help us out with the spoonful of slop. We've established a Patreon account, and listeners like you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. That's just 25 cents a week. Or you can give a fiver and help me cover my costs, or more, if you like. And portions of the proceeds from all new patrons this week will go toward Gruel for Oliver Twist and his fellow lads, and or server space for the history of literature. Just head over to patreon.com slash literature to sign up. And then... Consider yourself at home. That's right. <laughs> Consider yourself from Oliver. I love that era of musicals and the movies that came after. Oliver! Exclamation mark. It was a pretty good movie, and of course, it was based on a book, as we just heard... By Mr. Dickens, that writer fella. Lawrence of Arabia was based on a book, too. And yet, Mike and I failed to mention either one of those. I don't know how we missed Lawrence of Arabia. That should have gotten a nod. They turned, I, I say they, I should give credit. Robert Bolt, the man who wrote A Man for All Seasons, another amazing screenplay, was the writer. He adapted, adapted T.E. Lawrence's book, of course, and he and director David Lean turned the chronicle of Lawrence's time in the Middle East into what we have now, which is one of the most beautiful movies ever made. It's a beautiful script. It's a script that Steven Spielberg called the greatest screenplay in the history of cinema. Maybe the most inspiring movie. It's one of the most riveting it's riveting because they had the keenest of insights. To know what really mattered about Lawrence for the viewers was not the great game and the politics and the this and that of parliaments and congresses, but as all that would play out in the human figure of Lawrence, who was not at home in England and not at home in Arabia. He was an extraordinary figure, and yet he lacked something that the most basic citizens typically have. Knowledge. Awareness of where they belong. I don't have that. Maybe that's why I love the film so much. Then, after the film, the next day, I took my boys to the swimming pool, and on the way back, my son wrapped his head in his white towel, and he said, Hey, Dad, guess who I am? 
And I cried out, Lawrence, like they call him in the movie. And he said, actually, I don't know who I am. Ah, <laughs> it's fun to have a 12-year-old. And you get these moments when they get it, when you know they're in on it too. It's so much fun. Speaking of fun, we're talking about literature and movies with Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Well, what could be more fun than that? Here's the conversation coming up on the history of literature. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor. And they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code LITERATURE50 to get 50% off. That's code LITERATURE50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hi, this is Jack, interrupting the flow temporarily. I'm sorry. We're going to have a special public service announcement at the end of the episode. Do not feed bread to ducks. Okay, let's get back to the show. Okay, we're joined again by Mike Palindrome, our friend from the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Jack. Okay, so we're doing Literature Goes to the Movies. This is something that has been requested repeatedly from our listeners. And one of the big problems, I think, we're going to talk about great films or uh, great adaptations of literary works today. One of the problems with this is choosing... Uh, just five. I, I really found it hard to limit. I'm sure we're going to leave a lot out. I've got an honorable mentions list that I want to go through. 
Uh, but I think you'll probably you'd probably agree with me that it was very hard to select just the five best. Yeah, I, I really didn't stick to five. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I although I I prepared five, I'm a little bit worried you're going to take at least one of my picks. So I'm uh, okay. I'm prepared with a, a number six as a backup. But uh, okay. like I said, I I could have I could have chosen fifty. I should probably say that what I did to kind of narrow things down is to say I just chose ones that were very important to me at one time or another. I'm sure there are some great films that uh, were very deserving, but if it wasn't one that really resonated with me at some point in my life, I kind of left it off just because there are so many others that uh, were deserving of a place and that I thought I could talk about more meaningfully. Yeah. Well, why why don't you go first then? I'll, I'll, I'll let you. Oh, that's a switch. I I don't know if I can. <laughs> okay, I will. I'm going to go first, okay. and I'm going to take The Godfather. <laughs> all right, that's on my list. Though. This is a 1972 film. I'm counting kind of The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 together. I always lump those two together. 99% mm -hmm. rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which everyone's familiar with Rotten Tomatoes, right? It's like the aggregate reviewers they count up reviews so you get the mm -hmm. best of uh you don't just limit yourself to one critic but you get a, a sort of a spread of all the critics so i think godfather one and two are in the top five films ever made every scene is a classic almost every line is a classic they're all it's all very quotable it's all made its way into popular culture it's got the brilliant performances and the cinematography and it was based on Mario Puzo's books, which I know that I read. Um, I read The Godfather when I was in Taiwan. I don't remember it that well. It's what uh, it's the type of book that Francis Ford Coppola kind of dismissed as a potboiler. And Coppola was a screenwriter originally. I first, I think the first film that I probably saw of his, well, the first one was maybe Tucker when that was in the theater. But then I, which wasn't a great movie, but but I saw Patton. That was a, a big mm. film for me when I was in high school, and he had written the screenplay for that. And although Puzo, you know, the the granted the the novel is not great. It's a little bit of a it is a pot boiler, I guess. Uh, he's not George Eliot, but there is he did get those themes on the table, and Coppola shaped them in the in the film. But themes like uh, Omerta and the the idea of these people living by a moral code outside the law and the fact that they have this loyalty to the family and the the impact of immigration on America for better or worse and just mm -hmm. the whole 20th century saga the molding of New York and America by these Sicilian immigrants and these families and and then the other thing that really always uh drives the movie i guess is the moral code of some kinds of crime, like hard drugs, were b considered beyond the pale, but then the money and the power were too tempting to resist. So there's this feeling of, are you tempting fate with this? Are you, uh, right. you know, it's kind of a Faustian bargain. But it's such a great film. It's on every all kinds of lists of the greatest films of all time. I, it's really easy to find, but IMDb had it as number one, was number three on AFI's, uh, American Film Institute's top-ranked um, greatest films ever. It was the top-ranked adaptation 
It's the number one on the the site Ranker, which I think is a, a poll of uh, viewers and Time Out uh, does a, a thing where they poll actors. And in the most recent one, it was number two. Uh, I was a little surprised Tootsie was number one, which I think is sort of a, <laughs> an actor's movie maybe. But in any so case, we, that's my pick, The Godfather. So, you know, when you were picking these, did you start with the films you love and then sort of backtrack and ask yourself, hey, did I even read this book? <laughs> yeah, that was kind of it. I was going through all the films <laughs> I loved the best. And then sometimes I'd get all caught up and I'd actually have one written down. Like right mm-hmm. before we started, I thought, oh, I'll put Cinema Paradiso on there. Then I thought, wait, mm-hmm. is that even a Like it's as far yeah. as I know, that is not based on a book at all. Um, yeah. But then other films kind of jumped out at me because I knew it had been ad- adapted or I had read the book because I loved the movie so much or some of them are maybe we'll get to some that I think are maybe even more famous as books and yeah. the the film was just a, a really good adaptation of it because you know in my list I, I completely uh, I copped out I have a bunch <laughs> uh, that I, uh, of movies I love that I've never read the book and I just decided <laughs> I was going to put them on but right. for my first pick I started with something I I, I, um, I chose Never Let Me Go mm. by uh, Kazuo Ishiguro which I think was written in the 2000s yeah. um, which is a dystopian novel set in England about a cloning process for every person who's born they the society immediately clones you so that you have this organ reservoir in case you as you grow older and you get sick they contact the clone who's um living this semi-normal life Mm -hmm. and they tell them now it's time to donate your organs to the your real self and um it focuses on three uh, clones who become friends and it tracks them through the years uh, and one you know a clone obviously once they give up their organs you know you know they're deceased and often the clones give up their organs pretty early because you know it's a dystopian society and you know people don't live very long but one job a clone can have is to become a helper and they help the clones survive after, say, the first organ donation. And so mm-hmm. there's this caretaker um, relationship that can form. And so one of the three, they, we, we start with them as teenagers, one of the three becomes a clone caretaker. And in the book, it's, it's just beautifully developed, the, the friendship between the three clones. And in the movie, the caretaker is played by Carrie Mulligan, who... Uh, has been in a bunch of films and she always plays kind of this low key pixie uh, <laughs> character. But in this film, she's kind of like the anchor. Mm. And I always think that this is like such a plum role that they gave her. Yeah. You know, if you contrast this to the movie drive, yeah. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, it's a fun film, but it's kind of a silly film. And yeah. her role in it is very much oh, she's the kind of role she usually gets. Yeah. yeah she, 
Uh, and it's a fun, she, she's a good actress, but, uh, you know, I love the way they used her in Never Let Me Go. And I don't know, who, I, I forget who directed it, but I'm, I'm kind of, I picked this as my number one because I, I could go back and forth between thinking what's better, the book or the movie. Hmm. Well, it was directed so. by Mark Romanek. Oh, okay. Um, I frankly am astonished that you picked this. <laughs> As your number one. I, you know, I read the book in English and I read it in French. <laughs> I, so, I think the book's genius. Is she? Okay, so you, you love the book. I mean, yeah. Ishiguru, like, he's he's got Remains of the Day sitting right there. That could have been, uh, that would have been a worthy pick. This is what? your number one pick? Well, I think because I've seen the movie four times, <laughs> I feel like the movie has a lot of depth to it. And right. it's, it, you know, there's so many dystopian works that have come out recently. Yeah. You know, and the amount of millions of dollars that, say, a book like Hunger Games has made. Yeah. And it's like... Oh, yeah, we are in a real drought as far as movies that are just about grown-ups. Yeah. 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 Um, it's it's pretty awful that movies that we would just sort of take for granted in the seventies and eighties they just aren't around much. You know, everything is comic books and yeah. I mean, hunger. It's like Hunger Games to me is like bathroom humor. Yeah, that's that that's the level of culture. Um, <laughs> right. the movies, the movies. I mean, the right. book. The books actually are quite entertaining. I read the books. I read all three in probably a fortnight, and I, I, I mean, I, at first it irritated me because each chapter is about one and a half pages long. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was really into it. <laughs> well, I have to confess, I, uh, I don't mean to be the bad guy criticizing your choices here, <laughs> but uh, I think it's pretty clear that I'm going to win this draft in a. <laughs> In a route. This is like we'll this see. is like choosing your best friend from your little league team if you're running the New York Mets. <laughs> I'd like to say if people have seen Never <laughs> Let Me Go, please come and defend me and, and, and just remark on how it, it's one of the best teenage films, a depiction of teenagers I've seen in, right. in the last in the last twenty five years. So. Okay. Well, the review I found says pretty. Empty and immediately forgettable. That's Tom <laughs> Huddleston in timeout. So, uh, but you know, to each his own. And I'm glad that you're picking uh, films that are important to you, and and books as well. So I'm going to take my number two. Um, I'm just gonna. This is going to be a bloodbath. I'm gonna, <laughs> my number two is Apocalypse Now. Yeah, that's on my list. Which I wanted to take because I wanted to make sure that I took something that had a classic work mm-hmm. underneath it. And in this case, it's Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which is one of my favorite books. And it was long considered unfilmable, probably because Orson Welles, it was actually the first film that Orson Welles tried to make was Heart of Darkness, and he failed. He was planning to shoot the whole thing from the narrator's point of view. He was going to have the camera be Marlowe's eyes as he was traveling up the river. And it the budget was too high and it all fell apart. And it was also, he was making it explicitly anti-fascist and anti-Hitler. And it was viewed by the studio as being too political because it was still the 1930s. It was still early and we weren't at war with Germany. So 
anyway, uh, they they axed that, and then and then this little side note: Wells at that point he agreed to shoot a thriller on a lower budget, and it was called Smiler with a Knife. <laughs> <laughs> and then that fell apart, and then he ended up making Citizen Kane. So, in any case. Uh, Hearts of Darkness, which is one of my favorite films, is the documentary, and it shows how Coppola kind of went crazy trying to capture the madness of Conrad's dark vision of Heart of Darkness and yeah. to marry it with the insanity of Vietnam, which was still very fresh. It, it was 1979, so it was only uh, you know just a couple of years after the Vietnam War ended. So it was really a, a an open wound for... Americans and and the world going to see this movie and the film itself is like a nightmare it's beautiful it's intense it's dramatic and the scenes are amazing and unforgettable the acting is unbelievable with uh you know to for Charlie Sheen who was kind of going crazy as they well first of all I think there were two or three other actors who ended up having misfortunes befall them and Charlie Sheen Charlie Sheen Martin Sheen came, was sort of helicoptered into the picture, and he started to go crazy. And yeah. then for him to be on this journey that winds up with uh, crazy Dennis Hopper and then <laughs> Marlon Brando, who's like, uh, at that point, I mean, he was, uh, he almost is like some kind of totemic figure, this this insane, uh, yeah. oversized person at the end it's it's just an amazing movie oh here's a here's a quote from orson wells i wanted to read who said this about heart of darkness quote a downright incantation in which we are almost persuaded that there is something essential waiting for all of us in the dark areas of the world end quote and that's really what the film captures it's a it's a great adaptation of a of a great work yeah i mean i I think that the first time I, I remember the first time I saw it and I just thought this is about the best. This, this may be the best movie I've ever seen. Yeah. And you I mean, feel, because, it, yeah. it, you just feel like it's, uh, it's really pushing the boundaries of what cinema can do. Yeah. I mean, every single, so many images the opening shots mm-hmm. are like stills like when robert duvall and um in the helicopters land mm-hmm. and duvall's wearing his bandana yeah. and the 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 confederacy or a union cap i mean it's like <laughs> yeah i mean all those images and you know i mean it's on my list because I, I was thinking like what makes an adaptation good and it's really if it stands on its own yeah. and it doesn't feel like it's checking boxes. Yeah. You know, which, which so, I mean, we'll get to this in part two when we talk about bad films, but you know, the good films, the director says, you know what? I like your work and I respect it, but you, you don't know how, how to make movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what he's saying to Joseph Conrad. I mean, this predates film, but, you know, good, good adaptations kind of diverge from the from the book. Yeah, they kind of say, "Okay, I I can take this theme 
or I like this dilemma that you've generated here. I like this main character or maybe the dynamic between a couple of main characters, but then they really do build on it as a, as a film. I mean, Coppola being a screenwriter, it really shows here the way he's able to translate the, the whole journey in heart of darkness without following it, you know, faithfully without following the Conrad book faithfully, he's able to generate a completely different, but still, uh, recognizable journey. Yeah. And I mean, in some of the stuff, I, I, is it in the book? I don't, I don't remember. There, there are these shots where there's a, there's a massacre. There's a sacrifice of a bull. Oh yeah. I think that, I don't think that was in the book. I think it was, they stumbled across that and that was real. And they uh, they were wow. shooting in the Philippines, and they heard that this was going to take place. And yeah, they, I've never seen the documentary. Yeah. Oh, you haven't seen um, no, Hearts, Hearts of Darkness. Darkness? No. Oh, you've got to see it. That's uh, yeah. that should be number one on your list. It's it's just amazing to watch Coppola wrestling with. I mean, the script was unfinished. They were way over budget. He was putting his own money on the line, and there's oh. all of these. <laughs> Uh, and he, and they have all this footage of him because his wife was there taking home movies oh. and then they interview all the people who were involved and you just see what a, um, just what a, what a passionate project it was for him. And, right. um, it, but it's a really entertaining documentary too, but you'll come away from it with a all kinds yeah. of appreciation, not just for Coppola and for the actors and everything, but just that whole era, the era yeah. when, you know, they believed that cinema could accomplish something. There's a famous scene where the screenwriter, John Milius, was saying how he was about ready to give up and he went in. Mm-hmm. I think maybe nobody was getting paid or if there was, it was too hard or the conditions were too hard. And, and he said he went in and met with Francis and he came out of the meeting and and Francis had convinced him that this was going to be the first film that would ever win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you do kind of feel that. Like he he feels almost this burden. Yeah. I don't know if it's sort of a Vietnam, a collective guilt, or what it was, but uh, or if uh-huh. it's just his devotion to cinema, but or maybe the responsibility he felt after the success of The Godfather. He felt like he could make any movie and he needed to, you yeah. know, he didn't want to just uh, rest on that. He wanted to push things farther. But um, it's an amazing documentary. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I I have it on my list. It, it was It was a few notches below Never Let Me Go. okay what do you have for number two i'm i'm almost afraid to hear what you this could i feel like this could take a really dark turn where it becomes so clear that i'm choosing these great films and and you're just uh i hope you have something that redeems yourself here uh well clearly you've never seen let me go (laughs) that's true that's true yeah uh... All right, for number two, I picked Blade Runner. Oh, and, yeah, that's a good choice. And and I I think this is, I I I think this is probably Ridley Scott's best film, mm. and probably Rutger mm. Hauer's best film. Mm. And yeah, you well, know, what would Ridley Scott? What's the other contenders? Gladiator, uh, Alien, oh, and a- Aliens. Right, sure. I just I just think this film 
probably influenced thousands of films. Uh, mm, yeah. I mean, it had, I mean, I don't want to say that it wasn't an American film, but when I saw it, it reminded me of Godard. Mm. It reminded me of uh, Godard's Weekend and reminded me of Fellini. They're, they're, the use of music and the 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 shots are incredible. I mean, mm. you can, and it's a little indulgent. I mean, I, I, I've seen the director's cut a number of times also in addition to the regular, and I think the regular cut is so much better. The director's cut has like unicorns. Mm. <laughs> it's a little it's a little it's a little out there but and it's also, Philip K. Dick is the yeah uh, do androids dream of electric sheep and and I here's a good example of why this film it needed to be a film because the visuals in this film are no matter how well you write no matter how distinctive a style you have the images again like in heart of darkness the image images in in blade runner are just incredible i mean the the origami figures that they make and the noodle eating Mm. it's like this strange futuristic la that's been taken over by japan and i don't know if you remember but there are all these advertisements that are on um zeppelins that float through the air Mm, and it's and it's said in like this very grating japanese voice um and it's just so so well done and it has one of the best speeches at the end which i don't know if you remember it's called tears it's referred to as called tears in rain Mm, mm -hmm. rutger hauer says basically like a light that shines twice as bright shines half as long and he, he delivers this incredible speech which I later found out he had just made up. Rutger Hauer did? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so here's the speech. I, I just love the speech. I mean, here's the last bit of it. He says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe attack ships off on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the, the, near the Tannhauser Gate. All these moments will be lost in time like tears in rain, time to die. So he wrote this entire speech, and Ridley Scott said, "What the hell is <laughs> Tannhauser Gate?" And, and Rutger Hauer was like, oh, "I just made that up." <laughs> and so Ridley Scott was like, "What? What is this speech? Like, where'd you get this?" And he was like, "I just wrote it." So <laughs> Rutger Hauer tried to rewrite it. Yeah. And afterwards, um, I, sorry, Ridley Scott rewrote it, and afterwards Rutger Hauer didn't like it so they got into this big argument and i think Rutger Hauer promised that he would use ridley scott's version but then when they filmed it he did his own version mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so i think this is like a prime example of the actor getting so into the film yeah that he had come up with this crazy speech right so when he filmed the scene, oh, this is the other thing. When he filmed the scene, the crew applauded and some of them cried. And Ridley Scott decided to keep it as is. Wow. It took yeah. that. It took the the endorsement yeah. of others. So, he, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, here's, here's a little bit of Ridley Scott's version. 
I have known adventures, seen people you people will never see. I've been off-world and back. Frontiers! I've stood on the back deck of a <laughs> blinker, bound for the Plutonian camps with sweat in my eyes, watching the stars fight on the shoulder of Orion. I felt wind <laughs> in my hair. It's so cliched. Yeah, you yeah. your rendition of it sort of tipped your hand a little bit there as to what you how you thought of it. Well, at the end, he when says, say, I've uh, frontiers. He, sa- <laughs> he goes, I've seen it and felt it. It's like, that's like writing 101. If you feel something, you don't say, I felt it. It's like saying that's funny when right. it's not really funny. Uh, so. Have you read the story? I have not. Wow. <laughs> so this is, this is one in a number of ones that I didn't have not read. Okay, right, right. That's what you had said. But the first yeah. one you you chose you had read. You liked them yeah. both. Yeah. Okay. Um, I will move on to number three. That's a good pick. Blade Runner's a good pick. Um, I will move on to number three, which mm-hmm. is probably my soft spot, and I'll explain that in a minute. I chose Touch of Evil. Mm. Who and wrote that? That was... Well, I'll get to that. So it's probably my soft spot are... Movies that are made out of crime books or pulp novels, and then they're turned into these great thrillers with, you know, they take a moral dilemma out of a Western or, or right. you know, some some just hack crime book. And other films like that that I love are Maltese Falcon and Jackie Brown and The Big Sleep. Some of those aren't, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call them hack books, but, you know, The Postman yeah. Always Rings Twice. And m- movies like that, I just love, I love the, the pace of them and the film noir aspects. Mm -hmm. And this one is based on a book, uh, called by Whit Masterson and it's called badge of evil. And (laughs) I've never read it, but just, I think you can kind of guess just from that title change, you know, badge of evil is, it really sets out the theme there of, yeah, you know, does a is it okay to plant evidence if you think the guy is guilty? What's the harm in that? And actually, that just happened. I don't know if you heard about this guy and this police officer in Baltimore, but you know they have those body cameras now, and they have like a thirty second delay. So you, oh, yeah. you turn on your camera, and it actually records the thirty seconds before, and it preserves mm-hmm. that the thirty seconds before you turn on your body camera. And this guy, this police officer, uh, it actually, that 30 seconds recorded him planting the evidence. Um, God. So, uh, in any case, it's, you know, it's still a live issue, but the, what Orson Welles does it in this, does with that theme in this movie is, is just wonderful. And his performance is great. Uh, Marlena Dietrich gives a great performance. Um, and it's got that that great opening scene with the single long shot tracking scene from the, I guess it's not all long shot. It starts with a bomb being set and then it follows it all the way through to the explosion, uh, which has become really influential that you open a movie with a, a scene like that or that you have a long uh, scene with no cuts. Um, Goodfellas followed that, that pattern. A lot of movies, I guess, have. have. Um and it, you know, it's just great to see a movie where Orson Welles, I don't think it was necessarily a, a film he was dying to make, but it is one that relatively late in his career, 1958 this was, and he was allowed to make it 
fairly untouched. It's sort of a movie uh, that doesn't have too much interference from the studio. And just to see what he does with it, it's got really interesting camera angles and a great soundtrack. And it's just a... uh, it's just a very enjoyable movie that uh, I like as a good example. I guess I guess I have two of these already on my list of uh, not-so-great books that are turned into wonderful pieces of art by the director, and the, and the film is really superior to the underlying book. But in any case, um, Touch of Evil, I just couldn't leave it off my list. I have never seen the film. Oh. Yeah. I know. Mean, I've got to do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, this is, you know, th- these might be like uh, Magic Mountain, you know, the, the <laughs> nice book track. I have not read. I'm, uh, I can't fault I just, you too much for not having I, seen Hearts of Darkness and Touch of Evil, but those are two very important films to me. I, 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 I'm going to read uh, Magic Mountain. <laughs> in French <laughs> this this month. Actually, Why? To practice my French and I also feel like it <laughs> it's there's no reason to read it in English. I mean it, it was written in German. I mean, but there must be books written in French that you haven't read yet. Uh yeah. I I mean I, I read the first volume of Swan's Way. Yeah. So I guess I could try to tackle the rest of it. <laughs> Right. Well, that's good. I mean, it's it's nice. It's a book you know so well that yeah. the French will be kind of fun for you to read, I guess. Yeah, and it's 250 pages longer, which huh. you know, I I I, I I I know that um the French language takes you use seven words to express three words mm. in English. Mm-hmm. Um it, things are always longer. <laughs> So. Okay, so what's your number three? All right, with number three, I chose Pride and Prejudice. Oh, and which I, one? I, cho- I chose the 1995 BBC. Oh, I just <laughs> oh, wait, yeah, I just watched that uh, yeah. with the family. So, but I, I put this with North and so South. So good. It's not really a film. It was a miniseries, right? Yeah, yeah, but, six episodes. But maybe, you know, it got me thinking, like, Elena Ferranti's Neapolitan novels being turned into a a series, Mm. and Mm -hmm. perhaps there are some novels that deserve a series, like The Magic Mountain, the German, there's actually a German series of it, and I watched it, and it was just brilliant. Mm -hmm. It's, like, very hard to find, and it's ten episodes. Yeah. And, um... I like other versions of Pride and Prejudice. There's the Laurence Olivier version, and then there's the one more recently with Kira Knightley. And they're good, but when I watch that one with, you're talking about the one with Colin Firth. And, and Jennifer L.A. And Jennifer L.A. And yeah. it is, uh, it really makes you think that the book deserves the yeah. longer treatment because the stuff that you have to condense is really interesting plot developments that, that really shed a lot of light on the characters. It did not feel, uh, yeah. you know, like I didn't want it to be more compact. I really, I, I loved every one of the six episodes. And, and you know, some of the best lines of dialogue in the BBC version are not in the book. Mm. I was shocked, you know, and it, that's the same case with, I, I also 
for this pick, I added North and South, the Elizabeth Gaskell mm-hmm. um, novel, because the yeah. BBC did a great version of that in 2004. And um, again, some of the lines are not in the novel, and I, I, you know, I really respect that about, um, you know, the writers that they they felt that it really, you know, it, it had more punch to to, mm. to rewrite a line and rewrite a moment. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah. That I don't know if you've listened to the most recent appearance of uh, Rada Vatsal, who was on the show of, of mm-hmm. a few episodes ago. And yeah, she yeah. had talked a lot about Mrs. Gaskell. She talks about uh, Elizabeth Gaskell's works is in Rada's second book and mm-hmm. um, talks about her as sort of an influence. And I had played on the show the the clip of Judy Dench where she's talking about the where they're, where they're reading the old letters of hers. And it's just... Um, it's it's too bad that I couldn't post the video in the podcast as well because <laughs> Judy Dench in that North and South is just amazing. Yeah. Ah, oh, good pick. Okay. Well, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. I'm making a comeback. You're making a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> uh I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and I am gonna take since you took a Jane Austen, mm-hmm. um I had actually I'm gonna call an audible. Um, I had originally, it's funny because I originally had put, um, sense and sensibility on for my number four, Mm -hmm. uh, the Emma Thompson version, but even as I, yeah, it is good. But even as I had put it in, I kind of was hesitant because I like the Pride and Prejudice better, but I I didn't really want to take it because it was a mini series and I didn't know what the rules were. I, I, uh. I'm not as confident as you are that I can get good rulings from the commissioner on these things. So I didn't know if I'd be allowed. But anyway, but because you took a Jane Austen book, I I actually, even before we started talking, I was thinking that a movie that is similar to that, but was actually more important to me in my life uh-huh. is uh, Room with a View. Oh, yeah. So that's, of course, the E.M. Forster novel. It was made into a film in 1985. It's There's probably better movies than this one, but this one, everybody loves this movie. Mm. It has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and it's funny because Julian Sands, you know, who plays uh-huh. the lead, uh, the, the male lead, he they show on there your highest movie and your lowest movie. Mm-hmm. And his highest rated movie that he was in is uh, Room with a View. One hundred. Wait, I, can, I oh. can guess the lowest rated movie. Okay. So Room War- with a View is the highest, 100%. What do you think is the lowest? Warlock. <laughs> no. <laughs> what? His lowest <laughs> is one that received 0%. Mm-hmm. A total splat. It's called The Doctor and the Devils. And it's... Uh. It's based on a play by Dylan Thomas, and it was produced by Mel Brooks. So, wow, I have no no idea what that's about. But yeah, Warlock is down there. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, back to Room with a View. This was, I don't know if you remember this story. I don't think you were around at this point, but I might have told you afterwards that I, I had to take Italian class. I, I was 
trying to take all these other things that were booked when I was in college. I had to take, um, I tried to take Spanish. I tried to take Latin and German and French and everything I went to was booked. And finally I ended up in Italian and I remember, yeah, it was not something that I had chosen at all. It was back then it was a lot harder. There was no online registration or anything. So it was harder. You had to actually show up in the class or you had to, to things would get booked and it would be harder to work your way in. And I remember there were women in the dorm who would say, Oh, you're taking Italian. You should watch room of the view, which was then was only a few years old. And so I did. And then there was a summer where a room with a view and the Godfather and cinema Paradiso were, were soundtracks that I had and I was listening to them all the time. And it's just, it's a beautiful movie. It's, the cinematography is gorgeous and Helena Bonham Carter is 19 and she's very charismatic and charming. And, uh, Daniel Day Lewis is in it. Maggie Smith and Judy Dench, uh, Rupert Graves. They're all fantastic. And it's just a, it's just fun. And it, it really hit me at the right point in my life where it was, you know, encouraging young people to go and, and, experience life and to live and uh and travel but it wasn't just that and i actually did all those things i i by the time i was 20 i actually was in italy and kind of following in her footsteps i went to florence but there's a great quote uh roger ebert had a great quote about it which i think is suggests it's it's a little more than just um sort of saying, well, when you're young, you should cut loose and, and throw aside, you know, your, mm-hmm. your, your supervisors or, you know, the restrictions, but it's, uh, his quote is, it is an intellectual film, but intellectual about emotions. It encourages us to think about how we feel instead of simply acting on our feelings. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that really is kind of what it, what it, how it spoke to me. It was, not just, you know, go to Italy and have a good time, but uh, yeah. really think about yourself and, and what you want out of life and how you want your your mind and your your stomach and your heart to all be engaged and and embracing life. I mean, room with a view, I was thirteen and I probably saw it when I was fifteen. Mm-hmm. And I have to say it might have been one of the first serious films I ever saw. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It kind of goes I, down easy that way. Cause it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting to look at and the, the, it's got a lot of comic comedic moments and, um, and that great soundtrack. So, yeah. 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 Harry met Sal- when Harry met Sally was a movie that was kind of like that for me. I remember going to see that in the theater and thinking, Oh, this is really sort of a grown-up movie that I'm I'm not just watching like Gandhi or something because it feels like a book report, you know, but it was one that I was really uh enjoying kind of as an adult would enjoy an adult movie that was actually in the theater. Yeah. Okay. So, I think it's your pick for number 4. So, I so far I had two books I've read, one book I haven't, so I picked another one that I, I hadn't read. I haven't read, but I, I own, so I'm going to read it at some point. It's The Talented Mr. Ripley. Ooh, yeah. I actually have read that book. 
How is it? Uh, it's good. Yeah. 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 It's Patricia Highsmith. Yeah, yeah, she's great. I so mean, is the main is the main character gay in in, in the book? Um, I think it's hmm. ambiguous. Okay. I can't remember now if it's explicit, but I my memory of it is that it's ambiguous. I mean, the movie is just beautiful. Italy, the Amalfi Coast. You know, um, this is Matt Damon. Matt Damon, uh, Jude Law, Gwyneth oh, yeah. Paltrow, yeah, um, Kate Blanchett. I mean, the outfit, the number of outfit changes is insane. <laughs> and, and the right. the lighting in it. It was actually written by, um, I think Anthony Minghella. It was his last film. He had done The English Patient. Maybe not written it. But he, I, I know he directed uh, it. Yeah. So you can see the the similarity. I mean, an English patient. I almost picked because I I love oh, the book. Yeah. The Andante book. Yeah, I love the book. That's the movie. Right. I think I love irrationally. So I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't put it here because I think the movie is not as good as I think it is. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. I might be the other way around on that. I think oh, I yeah. like the movie, and I'm irrational about liking the Andace book. I mean, the, the movie, and the other thing about the movie is I love the movie on its own, mm. but the book has so much about um, the Sikh, mm-hmm. and the movie, you know, kind of focuses on the romance, right? which I still enjoyed, but there's a little part of me that was irked. By the way they did that. Yeah. So, but the talented Mr. Ripley, I think um, the use of jazz in the film is brilliant. Oh. Yeah. And the, the, the quick camera cuts with the dialogue, I think, really showcases Jude Law's intensity. I, I feel like, you know, so many people fell in love with him with that, yeah. with that film. Wait, which guy does he play? He plays Dickie Greenleaf. He okay. plays he plays the guy that well, I don't want to give it away if people haven't seen it, but Ripley uh, becomes obsessed with. Yeah, right. So, so how but is he in the whole movie? Oh, I don't want to give that okay, away. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he He's in he, enough of it that he makes a strong impression. Uh, I mean, he he's so dynamic in that yeah. film. I think he, um, it was really the perfect role for him. And I, I was I, I, I was disappointed that when they made Great Gatsby, they didn't cast him. Ah, oh, that's yeah, Gatsby. They, they had they had Leonardo DiCaprio, but I I really thought Jude Law would have been Great Gatsby. Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah, well, I don't think I don't want to. Jump ahead to your number five, but I don't think The Great Gatsby is going to make either of our list. <laughs> uh, although it might make it when we get to the bad films. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good pick. Talented. I don't remember. I think I did see it. I don't remember the movie much at all. I, I had a kind of memory of it as being uh, a little bit too long. Is that uh, Was that the criticism of it? Was that it was a little too, isn't it three hours or something? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but you go for long movies. I do. I I, I really do like long movies. So. Yeah. Yeah. And 
uh, I think Mingala it 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 had a kind of rap that he it was a little self indulgent for him, a little visual or maybe maybe that was the complaint was that it was a little slow at times and maybe a little too visual. Yeah, but sounds like that wasn't your uh, take on it. Definitely not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I will go to my number five. Um, and again, I sort of passed over Sense and Sensibility because you had taken Pride and Prejudice, but that's a great movie. I mean, uh, Ang Lee directed and Emma Thompson, Kate Winslet, uh, that would have been a good pick. But instead, I am going to take, uh, we haven't taken any Shakespeare films yet. And so uh, I am going to take my two favorite, which are uh, the Akira Kurosawa films, uh, Throne yeah. of Blood and Ron. And wow. Spielberg called Kurosawa the Shakespeare of cinema. And he really was, I think, at his best when he was adapting Shakespeare. His, his Throne of Blood is from 1957. It was the retelling of Macbeth. Have you ever seen this that one? With uh, Toshiro Mufune is Macbeth. Um, I haven't. I've seen oh. Ryan though. It's so good. He's like the king. He's got this guilty conscience, and he sees these demons in the forest. And it's it's just it's black and white, but it has such a um, it's so atmospheric, and the mist and the the weather is mm. so well captured, and it it's a really absorbing movie and it has an amazing ending to it but it's it's one of my favorite black and white films uh and one of my favorite shakespeare adaptations and then ron you've seen the that's in color but it's basically a retelling of king lear in the context of japanese samurais and it's a little bit slower paced more slow uh than throne of blood but they're both great and there's a lot of films we could have chosen or that I could have chosen from Shakespeare, but these two I think are close to being my favorite, if not my favorite. And I really like that Ron is based on King Lear. You know, there's a lot of, like Hamlet gets done all the time and Romeo and Juliet gets done all the time, but there aren't that many film adaptations of King Lear. Yeah, Orson Welles did one, right? Uh, King Lear? I don't think he did. He did oh. the Falstaff one, Chimes at Midnight, where he combined all the Falstaff parts from the different plays into one. Uh, he did Othello. He did Macbeth. Um, I'm not sure if... Uh, I'll look it up here, but I I don't think he ever did Lear, which is too bad. Um, yeah. Oh, I guess... Uh, yeah, I guess he did. Yeah. Oh, he did it for television. Oh, okay. uh, he starred in it, but it was um, it was directed by Peter Brook. You liked Ron when you saw it? Did you see it in the eighties when it came out, or something more? No, recently? I saw it. I saw it in the nineties. Yeah, catching up on my Kurosawa. Right, right. Okay, so what's your uh, what's your last pick? <laughs> so I went with Contempt. <laughs> so it's. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I love the novel by Moravia. Um, yep. And I think it's probably uh, the best novel 
uh, of his uh, that show that also shows what he was really obsessed with, which is a guy who is mildly successful, but with a woman who's clearly beautiful and and desired by everyone. And he the the character convinces himself that um, this woman hates him. Mm-hmm. So that's the plot of a lot of his novels and short stories. So so Godard takes this novel and makes a film casting Jack Palance. Jack Palance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, who is the 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 male? I think. Uh, uh, you mean Michelle? The Michelle Pic- Piccolo. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Piccoli. Piccoli. Yeah. Is the um, screenwriter. Right. And then the uh, director. Do you remember who plays the director? Oh, no. Who did it? Oh, Fritz Lang. Fritz Lang playing uh, himself. Right. Oh, my God. It's <laughs> great. And then it's got Bardot. And it's got Bardot in our prime. So yeah, um, yeah. the film, it, and it's shot in Capri. Oh, it's, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it it's is. It's just a stunning film. I mean, and, and I've seen it. I've seen it on the small screen. I've seen it in the, on the big screen and um, in the festival. It's it, it's just one of these films that just you you know exactly what he was trying to do. What he and he he pulls it off completely, mm. and he kind of doesn't give a crap about the book at some point. Yeah. And that's <laughs> and that's fine. And I, I you know it's one of these examples where you know you, the book can only do so much on the screen. Mm. Hmm. So you know, it's funny because I've read the book and I've seen the film, but I've never really compared the two in my mind. You know. Yeah. I. Uh, oh, they're so I different. Sort of read them independently. Yeah, and it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't as if I. I think I saw the film first, but then when I read the book, I wasn't really thinking, "Oh, I'll compare this in my mind with the film or anything." It was two independent experiences for me. And I guess that says something that there wasn't enough that reminded me that I yeah. yoked the two together in my mind. And it, it's really worth seeing Palance playing this kind of scum, scummy character. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's, he's quite brilliant. In it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he could get out of his sort of his typecast role. Yeah. I wonder just how much of a departure that was. So Contempt was, what, 1963? Uh, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So Palance, I'm going to see what films he was making like in the late 50s and 60s, early 60s. Um, I'm guessing Westerns and, yeah. So, yeah, he was in all kinds of films, but it was all... You know, Sword of the Conqueror, the Mongols, the Last Judgment, Barabbas. Um, they were they're all, um, you know, sort of action films, and he plays soldiers and characters like that. And then Contempt. Oh, so good! Good casting. And the shots are just beautiful. He really Godard used the lighting on Capri so well. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I got to see that again. That was uh, that was a fun one. You know, I I like to go to uh, when films like that are on the big screen. I did see it yeah. on the big screen. I think at the Michigan Theater. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's a real treat when a movie like that is, you know, like I could watch Lawrence of Arabia again, but it's like, I'll just wait, you know, every, every six months or so, some, some movie house plays it. And then it's, you get to treat yourself that way. So a friend of mine who went to film school only went through, through a period where he only watched movies on the big screen. Mm, Yeah. And, and he said it really, it really made, it it sparked, spurred all these memories of his childhood. Ah, yeah. Cause, cause he would never see a movie at home, but whenever he went to see a movie, he'd see it on the big screen. And when he, he said when he sat down in that seat and the movie started, he had these like stirrings of his childhood. He mm. said it was so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but he was in LA and they have a bunch of revival theaters so he could do that without spending, you know, whatever it is today, eighteen dollars yeah. for a film. <laughs> um okay, so let's run through some honorable mentions. And... Wait, what was your fifth pick? Oh, you uh, did your fifth. Yeah, I the uh, Kurosawa films. Oh, okay, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I've got some pretty good animal mentions. But... Okay. Why don't you go first? Sophie's Choice. Oh. William Styron. Yeah. Right. That movie is just, it's genius. Oh, yeah, it is. It's hard to watch. Oh, my gosh. The first As it yeah, should the, be, you know, the given first the subject time matter. You see it, you just, oh, you're, you're, I know. You're, you're, you watch so tensely, you know, and. And oh, I am not a big Meryl Streep fan. Oh, really? Yeah, I really, um, I mean, I like her. I like her as a person. <laughs> I say that like she's my neighbor. I mean, <laughs> I, I I, like the idea of her. I I respect her. But I'm kind of in that Pauline Kael. I think Pauline mm-hmm. Kael has said in a review, if you are not seeing it with her, and if everything, yeah. you know, she says that when she watched Meryl Streep, it would be she, like Meryl Streep would pick up a glass of water and Pauline Kael would be thinking, there is Meryl Streep acting that she's picking up a glass of water. You know, she could never lose herself. Like as a viewer, she could never lose herself in the experience because she was only seeing Meryl Streep sort of acting the hell out of it. I think Pauline Kael could go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that... Uh, that kind of articulated for me something that I had felt with Meryl Streep. But when I saw her play in that movie where she played Julia Child, I just completely, like, uh-huh. after about 20 minutes, I really thought I was watching a documentary of Julia Child. Like, I was completely in it. She, So I can see it both ways with Meryl Streep. But Sophie's Choice is, uh, and Kramer versus Kramer, are yeah. just devastating. Um, and Deer and, Hunter. Oh, yeah. So. That's right. Yeah, I don't think of her in that as much, but um, I only think of Christopher Walken, I think, when I think of that movie. Yeah. Um, okay, what else? I, I've got a, a number of nonfiction books uh, oh. uh, that I loved. I, I love The Big Short by Michael Lewis and mm. Black Hawk Down by yeah. Mark Snowden. Mm-hmm. And I thought the the adaptation of the film, the, those, those two works were... were Incredible. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I think th- they really understood, you know, what the book was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, and then another nonfiction book I, I put down, but I haven't read this one, is um, Traveling to Infinity, My Life with Stephen Hawking by oh. Jane Hawking, which yeah. they made into the film Theory of Everything. Uh-huh. Um, and it made me want to read the book because 
the, the movie was so interesting. Her mm. that relationship once Hawking kind of told her, "It's okay, you can let me go." Mm. And then they lived together, and he had this caretaker who was a buxom, charismatic person, and he kind of became, you know, they became lovers. Hawking mm. still visiting him. It's just one of these super complex emotional relationships that yeah it, it takes a real maturity for all for for the Hawkings to have emerged you know, right in, intact from from that and yeah the, I think the movie is is just beautiful with Felicity mm. Jones and, so okay and then I threw in a couple of fun ones uh, the Princess Bride oh yeah. By Actually, William Golding. <laughs> yeah, that is. Uh, I love know, the movie. That's. But I. I, mean, I meant it, to. It, I meant to take that. I didn't even have it on my honorable mention, but it was only because I forgot. I meant yeah. to put that in my top five. It, is the book that silly? Yeah. Like, oh it, yeah, yeah. Everything comes out of the book except the book oh, has a couple wow. of extra scenes. Um. But yeah, it's a very playful book. It the the tone of the movie comes right out of the book. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, tongue-in-cheek about, you know, well, here's the, um, of course, we have to have a giant. You know, what would a right. what would an adventure story be without a giant? You know, it's that kind of uh, playfulness Wait, so, to it. So the book, ha- one of my favorite scenes is when Wallace Shawn is, you know, he's the captain of the ship, and he's kind of ordering people about because they're trying to chase after um, the, 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 the direct pirate Roberts. Yeah played by Carrie Ells, and you know how both terminology is very specific, and Wallachan is so flustered, he kind of forgets the names of things. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, like, move that thing, and move that, <laughs> swing that thing over there, and move that thing, and move faster, move that thing. I always wondered if that was in the book, because that scene is so funny. It seems like something that uh, <laughs> Rob Reiner or Wallace Shawn might have come up with. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't remember if that's in the book or not. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if I've ever read the book all the way through. But I, I know never read the book. my kids have read it uh, several times. And Princess oh. Bride is just a great movie. Yeah, my kids love it. They love the book. Oh, um, I should check it out. It. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun read. Yeah. Um. Okay. Any others? I I had the oral history. The Oral History of World War Z by Max Brooks, Mel Brooks's son, which I tried to read, and the you know the first ten pages were fine, but I think the movie by Mark Forster is terrific, mm. and they're finally making a sequel to it. So okay, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but no, it it took oh you haven't seen it you should no. see it it took it took the premise of this British film. Uh, 24 days where what well, it took the concept of zombies moving very very quickly mm-hmm. because I think in the <laughs> 70s and 80s zombies moved really slowly <laughs> and so, so they 20, thought they'd switch things up yeah so 24 days later it's very <laughs> dark it's hard to see what's happening but whenever a zombie sees a human they just sprint at them <laughs> And so I don't know if it's in the Mel- Max Brooks novel, The World History of World War Z, but in World War Z, it, it's so well done. They had, the, I, I watched the documentary about it, 
they had these clay figures that would they would ram into the ground to show how fast the zombies were moving. <laughs> it's you're uh, it's, you're not selling me on this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then if my last the one. best. If that's the <laughs> best they can come up with is that zombies typically run slowly, but in this movie they're going to run fast. Oh, okay. I need a little so, more. I need a little more to chew on than that. It, it's also really good because in every single scene they lose against the zombies. So it's all about retreating. <laughs> so it, it's it's part of my theory that I tell my daughter that any good work of art is sad. Is sad. Has a sad ending. Yeah. Yeah. Has a sad ending. Um. I'm sure that's not true, but that's probably a, <laughs> a good rule of thumb. It's probably a good thing to to let kids know that, you know, so they don't think it's a mistake or that it's some kind I mean, of every sculpt, you know? every great sculpture is sad. Hmm. Wow. I, I is David? <laughs> How sad is David? Sad that youthful beauty might not last. Sort of. <laughs> All right, here's okay. my last honorary mention, okay. Dr. No by Ian Fleming. Oh, yeah. Which which I read and I loved. Yeah. And then I saw the movie, and again, I loved the movie. Ursula yeah. Andress as Honey Rider and, you know, Sean Connery as Ian Fleming uh, as, as James Bond. And, and I also felt like James Bond deserved a mention here because it, he, the industry yep. of James Bond, yep. uh, you know, I think... Ian Fleming's heirs are all living without jobs, without any kind of obligations or burdens because of this whole yeah. industry. Yeah, it's a good example of uh, a popular book series that Hollywood kind of got right, and they both ended up being iconic. Harry Potter is another one like that. I mean, the films yeah. are, you know, the films are pretty good, and the novels, of course, are... Uh, sort of destined to be, they'll probably be read 500 years from now. And if you want an example of that not working, like you would think, oh, well, that's easy. You know, everybody knows these are going to be popular movies. You just throw all this money at it. You make these big budget movies. You get the best people. But right. um, the Percy Jackson series was a big flop. And those yeah. books with kids are just as popular as Harry Potter. Um, maybe not yep. with adults, but like kids love those books and that could have been a huge series film series as well. But the movies, um, nobody, you know, even my kids don't really want to watch them. Yeah. So that's a good, that's a good that you gave a nod to James Bond cause it's, it is deserving cause the novels are pretty good. I mean, they're very good at what they do and the films are very good at what they do. Yeah. Okay, so here's my list of honorable mention. I'm just going to list them off because uh, there's too many to kind of <laughs> dig in and, and we're kind of running up against uh, the end uh -huh. of our time here. But uh, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. Gone with the Wind. Uh, Dr. Zhivago. The Age of Innocence. I thought you might take that one. The Spielberg, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, the Scorsese uh, version. Uh, Great Expectations, the David Lean version. Uh, yeah. Henry Henry V, my preference is Kenneth Branagh's version. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, which I've never read the book, but the movie was very good. 
I have read the book. I it's a great book. Oh. Yeah, Thomas Harris. Yeah. Say. Okay. Well, that's yeah. that's deserving then. Uh To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh The Big Sleep, Withering Heights, Lawrence Olivier version, Lolita, the Stanley Kubrick, uh and The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I like the Alec Guinness miniseries. Uh, yeah. The Maltese Falcon, I've already mentioned. The Prime of Miss Jean Brody is a really good film, a really good book, and a really good film. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a good adaptation of the Ken Kesey book. Uh, Lord of the Flies is a good movie. And, of course, the famous book. And Lord of the Rings is kind of a nice example of a, a book that everyone thought was unfilmable and then... The uh, Peter Jackson figured out a way to do it, and I think people, even the hardcore fans, I think were generally pretty happy with it. Um, and I think that is everything I had on my list. Wait, I've got one more mention. Okay, The Night Manager by John oh, Carre. Yeah, with uh, what's his name, Tom uh, Hiddleston. Hiddleston. Tom, yeah, yeah. Susan. So my favorite director this Danish director, Suzanne Beer, mm-hmm. um, made this series, and it is so entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. It was it. Yeah. I mean, I think I watched it on Netflix, but it it wasn't a, a Netflix original, was it? Was it on the BBC or? I think it was a BBC, but um, I, I really, I, I wish Suzanne Beer would do other adaptations because uh. I don't know if you know her work, but. She has this four-hour film called Open Hearts mm. that is one of my favorite films. It's about a couple, um, a young couple. The, the the man becomes paralyzed and is sexually, you know, impotent. Can't do anything, and the, the, his his girlfriend tries to stay by his side, mm. um, and then falls in love with their doctor. Mm. Yeah, it's just, it's this elegy to young love, open hearts. Mm, That sounds good. And um, you had taken a uh, short story in Blade Runner, but I wanted Uh to mention Shortcuts by Robert Altman, which is kind of an exception. Almost everything I had was either, you know, it was either a novel or a play, but that's kind of a nice example of short stories being adapted yeah. into a film that worked pretty well. Yeah, and the recent film Arrival, a sci-fi film by Denis Villeneuve, was based on a short story called Story of Your Life by Ted Chang. Mm. That's an example of taking a, a... Yeah, there were a couple of short story writers, and I was thinking about this, like Laurie Moore and Raymond Carver. I'm just surprised no one's been able to properly adapt. I know Shortcuts is about it's Raymond Carver's, Carver's work, yeah. but you know, like Cathedral, like you would like think a that single, you could yeah. turn it into a single movie. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Although, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get ninety minutes, you know, unless you're gonna build out more of a backstory. Or I, I think I might do it. <laughs> <laughs> try to make Car- try to make Cathedral into a, a mini series. <laughs> Didn't Carver try to write a? I think he tried to write a screenplay once, and it yeah. was was it on the life of Dostoevsky or it was something like that. My my memory of it is that they somebody said to him, he said, "I'm not sure how long it's supposed to be," and they said, 
Well, I think you can you can count on it being about a minute per page or something. Uh-huh. And he said, well, it's 1,800 pages, you know, or something, something like that. <laughs> he had written it way too long, but. I mean, here, here's here's the thing we haven't touched upon, but it's underlying a lot of our picks is that if you love a book, mm. you know, um, you want to be even more immersed than you you could by reading it. And so a film version, you have such high hopes for yeah. for it, you know, and, and then you just want to, you know, experience that first experience you had reading the book in different forms, like. You know, I've read Proust. I've mm. seen Time Regained, which mm-hmm. is a Proust film about the last volume. I've read the Proust comic book. I mean, you know, I've gone to Ilie Combray. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, I, I'm obviously just, you know, trying to get back that first feeling when I read Proust. And so, yeah, you know, it's such a delight when the, the, the book the movie is is just as good as the book and maybe better. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad that you said that because I almost forgot what probably should have been my number one, although I've talked about it so much on the podcast that maybe it's a good thing I didn't. Um, (laughs) But uh, The End of the Affair. Oh, yeah. Which is my favorite book. And the film, I remember I heard that the film was coming out and uh-huh. I got so excited because Julianne Moore was going to be in it and it just, and Ray Fiennes, and it just seemed like, oh boy, I'm really going to love this movie. And then, of course, I went to see it in the theater and I did, you know, it, it held up and it was even better in some ways. It was, it's got this beautiful score and it's got all that, the rain and just the the blues of London and it just it's just a wonderful movie and yeah. it was great that for me it 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 was almost like I it gave me the chance to read the novel again for the first time you know because yeah. I had the same themes and the same uh everything that I loved about the book was in the movie and but yet I could see it with these fresh eyes and I, I think that's also the reason why I reread stuff because there, there's a part of me that, like in Fahrenheit 451, I would love to memorize a book. Mm. <laughs> so it, it, it well, takes it it takes many decades in Fahrenheit 451 for each person to memorize an entire book, but that's their job. Yeah. Well, is Magic Mountain? I think you're you're on your way. <laughs> I think I could do um, a one three languages. Well, I I could do a one act play <laughs> on my favorite scenes that I, I think could be fairly accurate. Has anyone made a film so, of Magic Mountain? No. Well, they made this German miniseries, hmm. um, but I think it's too hard to make into a film. I mean, yeah, I, I think you could make um, you you could focus on maybe just the beginning, and then if it made a hundred million, then you could do the back, the yeah. second half. Yeah. Has anybody so. made tender as the night? Yes. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but yeah, that would what be 1962. I'm looking yeah. now. Somebody oh. made it. I remember cause a friend of mine was asking me to evaluate it. Oh yeah. Jason Robards is in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Jennifer Jones. 
I, I mean, figured there's somebody would have. I mean, once Fitzgerald had that little revival after his, yeah. you know, 20 years or so after his death, and uh, I figured somebody had made it. But okay, well, let's wrap things up there. And you are headed on vacation, but when you get back, we are going to do a part two of this in which we talk about some of the worst films, the ones that really didn't do justice to their text or it just yeah. turned out to be a disaster in some other way. So that's going to be a fun one. We'll do, it'll be literature goes to the movies part two. And right. in the meantime, have a great vacation. And thanks again for joining me here on the history of literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. go my thanks to mike as always for joining me can you believe his picks unbelievable but it's always fun to hear how he's thinking we've got some good shows coming up so please do subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends and if you have a few shillings to throw my way please visit patreon.com slash literature right oliver oliver do you know why we're asking for this no, 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 we're not, we're not trying to pick a pocket. We're, is that the best you have, Oliver? I do anything There we for go. You. Yeah, anything for you, mean everything to me. That's right. I know that. We I would do anything for you, dear listener. Or you mean everything to us. Oh, boy. Oliver Twist is working for us now. <laughs> Poor guy. Straight from the workhouse to the Jack Wilson Studios. What were we thinking? Is this, We're headed down a dark path, my friends. Who will turn up next week? You know who was in, Oliver? Davy Jones of the Monkees. And you know how I know that? Because the night the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, he was there too, watching along with everyone else. The cast was there doing a performance, and Davy Jones stood in the wings watching the Beatles. Probably thinking, wow, here I am playing this street urchin. Imagine if I was an actual Beatle. I'd better start growing out my hair. In case a producer is going to base a show on the Hard Day's Night era Beatles and they need a cute singer with a London accent. And they might get Neil Diamond to write some songs. And soon I'll be living it up like a, like an L.A. version of the Beatles. Until the backlash sets in. And everyone complains that I don't actually play an instrument. Oh, like the tambourine doesn't count now? And everyone's angry that we're phony. And that the tour when we opened for Jimi Hendrix was ill-advised. But then, the backlash to the backlash will make things pretty okay for me for the rest of my life. And I'll end up playing not stadiums, but county fairs here and there. And a young Jack Wilson, in his years working at the carnival, will someday come to my show and sell Cokes to the crowd. And then, 30 years later... He will launch a History of Literature podcast where he'll tell my story as part of his story. Well, 
Recall that in the mind of young Davy Jones, while standing in the wings watching the Beatles play, she loves you. One never knows how the story will end, but one does know how this story will end. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's me again. (laughs) So that was the end, except then I did some research, and I learned that my hunch was correct. Today, the scientific consensus seems to be that you should not feed bread to ducks. For a few reasons, the primary one being it fills them up without giving them enough nutrition. My apologies to the duck-loving community for getting that wrong at first, and of course, to the ducks. You'll be happy to know that I returned to the scene of the feeding, and the ducks were happy and healthy, getting their fill of insects and algae and other very nutrient-rich delectables. I'm Jack Wilson, lover of all creatures great and small. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.